everybody's got to eat. And nobody likes getting sick. That's why Heroes toil in the shadows, keeping your food safe at all points, from the supply chain to the point of sale. Join industry veterans Francine L. Shaw and Matt Ragusi for a deep dive into food safety. It all boils down to one golden rule. Don't eat poop. Don't eat poop. So, hey, Matt, how are you today? I'm doing well, and yourself? Good. So, this week, still a lot going on out in food safety land. Job security, Francine. Job security. (laughs) You know, I always tell people, unfortunately... I have I have more than one one business and they all rely on something bad happening and <laughs> that's a shame at least that's when they thrive you know what I mean and that's it kind of makes me feel bad about that it's like our businesses pick up when bad things happen, food safety, when do you get your busiest? Uh, my, my work doesn't alter with outbreaks. The amount of time I'm being expected to help people does, but it doesn't increase or decrease with outbreaks just because the on the supply chain side, the majority of the pull comes from retailers and food service companies. And so it more on the supply chain may... Uh, companies start getting a little bit more serious about it, maybe. Like it could be me that does it, but they're still performing audits. They're still needing consulting. They still need training, regardless if there's an outbreak or not. So my it doesn't increase. Regulation helps. Like I remember when FISMA first came out over a decade ago, a bunch of my clients were like, well, we're not going to need you anymore. The the federal government's going to take over and take all, take all this. Like- are you worried that you're going to lose your job? And I just started laughing. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not worried at all. I said, you guys are going to need us more now than before. And they're like, why? And I said, because before food safety has always been regulated by the market itself. So Walmart, Costco, um, Cisco, which is the huge broadliner for um, food service. Like most of your restaurants get food from Cisco or US Foods. They kind of dictate what the marketplace does for the supply chain. And I said, but now, now that it's law, more companies that don't supply to those people are going to have to start implementing food compliance. Um, so regulation increased my my workload over um, actual outbreaks. I think rely was probably the wrong word. I get busier. And by busier, I don't necessarily mean clients. Like I, during those periods, I write a ton of articles. Um, you know, of course people, you know, the demand people start to get concerned. So there are a lot more questions. Right. Um, right. Those types of things, the influx of, um, from a variety of sources. So on that note, Francine, we actually, on that note, we actually lose money every time there's an outbreak because time equals money. <laughs> I, you know, I was like, oh, so do you, like, at, um, I, mean, I know you're doing this podcast. Are, are you guys planning on making money on the podcast? I'm like, no, we're spending money on the, <laughs> the podcast. No, quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. But no, it, it, and so you're absolutely right. We get busier. But that busy is more along the lines of helping our clients make – it's like the worry of the me too. 
And how do I not end up having my brand drug in there? Matt can or Francine, can you please come and help me, you know, an, analyze what happened with this particular company, with this particular issue, and how we don't replicate it? Right. And, you know, for example, when in 2015, when the Chipotle outbreaks were happening one right after another, the influx of requests that I was getting for articles yeah. about that was absolutely insane. And it got to the point where it was like, I just, I, I can't take anymore. I can't do anymore because I felt like I was beating up Chipotle <laughs> and I did not want to do that. Even though the articles weren't written in that tense yeah, or that certainly never with that in that structure, but you start to feel like my heavens, everything I'm I feel like everything I'm writing is about is about this situation. <laughs> and I don't want it to be that way. I remember you going through that too. And I remember you saying to me, I remember you saying to me, there's only so many times I can say the thing, same thing in different ways. <laughs> I can't write 10 articles about the same thing and, and write about it differently. It's like, uh, it's now it's just copy and paste and then change things around a little bit. I remember you being like, yeah, I just, I don't, I like, I feel like my integrity isn't, isn't there because all, everybody wants unique articles and there's only so many ways you can rehash the same thing. And yeah. Yeah. So it becomes, you know, those types of things become, become very difficult. So anyway, now that we went down that rabbit hole, um, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's talk about some food safety news um, that I literally pulled from food safety news. And I yeah. think you, I'm sure you saw this too. Bill Marler, so creative, get the F out of the FDA. We want to split the FDA up into um, a couple different branches. Yeah. And food, in my opinion, does need to be separated. 100%. And it, yeah, and it's fascinating because FDA, Food and Drug Administration, you know, it starts with F, right? I mean, so, and, and not everybody utilizes drugs of some kind, but everybody consumes food. But the vast majority of the FDA's budget is wrapped around the drug aspect of it, not the food. It's like the food is the, you know, the stepchild or something like that. It's not even, it's not even the younger child or the middle child that gets forgotten. It's like the one that's there off in the periphery, you know, living with somebody else and, and they get a Christmas card occasionally. It's, it's, it's like its own little kind of out there and they're expected to do so much. I, I kind of feel sorry for the FDA because they're expected to do so much. Their resources are minuscule and it's like, they're the whipping child of the the Senate and Congress. They constantly go in and they're being beaten up. And then the FDA keeps saying, well, I, we don't have budget to do it. Yes, we have the expectation to do it, but we don't have the budget. Um, and the, the drug portion of it and the USDA, which is its own entity, gets a ton of money um, because they run the marketing programs and all that stuff. But the FDA, the, the food side – Gets nothing. It's sad. It's crazy. Well, and how do you how do they implement change without a budget? Right. Change costs money, significant amount of money to implement any kind of change. And how do we expect the numbers to improve? Which you know, in in our industry, we're constantly complaining about you know the numbers haven't changed in the last thirty years when it comes to illnesses and outbreaks and and things of that nature. How do we expect those numbers to change and how do we expect to see improvements 
when nothing at the FDA has changed or very little has changed. Yeah. And, you know, they're one of an entire suite, I guess I'm going to call it, of services that, like you said, is treated like a stepchild. Yeah. And they really are. And it's 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 interesting, too, because, uh, I mean, the FDA really touches every single person. The food side of the FDA touches every single person's life. People don't even know the amount of research that is done, the amount of uh, regulations that are completed, the amount of surveys and communication with industry that happens on a daily basis with the FDA. And everybody just assumes in, in the, the population of the United States – just assumes that you know it's it's being covered and it, and it really isn't and it's because they don't have budget. They do a lot of things given the staff that they have, uh, but they're like the nerds. So the USDA is like the the actual inspectors kind of out there, and the USDA does a ton of stuff, land grants, all this stuff. They have a they're a massive organization, and everybody thinks it's the FDA that's really doing a lot of that stuff. It's not. It's the USDA. But but because there are two different branches, they don't really talk to each other. Same with the CDC. The CDC doesn't really talk much with everything. So by having one entity that covers all food, kind of lumping everything over one head administrator, like the CEO of food administration, would be great because then there would be a lot less miscommunication amongst these dotted lines. And yet, well, we all expect, you know, they don't have the resources and nobody ever really talks about the FDA or the USDA until there's an outbreak or a tragedy. And then everybody. <laughs> yeah. Then everybody piles on. It's like arm. It's like, yeah. Attacks them. Why weren't they, where were the inspectors? Where were the regulators? You right. know, why weren't they be inspected? And you know, that's not, not really fair. You know, if we can't give them the resources to do the job, it's like a double-edged sword. How can we blame them right. for not doing the job? And, you know, like you just started, you just alluded to within the organization, you know, we've got the USDA and the FDA and, you know, the communication, not only that, <clears throat> but what they're responsible for is so convoluted to the average person. It isn't even going to make sense. No. For example, let's talk about eggs. The USDA is responsible for producers' dried, frozen, or liquid eggs. Right. The FDA is responsible for an egg processing plant, egg washing, sorting, and packing. Correct. So eggs, it depends on what stage of the egg or what the process of the egg is. Right. So eggs don't fall. You can't look at an egg and be like, okay, so this is the federal jurisdiction that this egg falls under. Right. And and okay, and so and the chick and the poultry side of things on the chicken side, that falls 100% under USDA. And so this literally could be a chicken or egg conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Not really because poultry depending on what state <laughs> whether it's a processor or it's a cooked piece of poultry. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Depends on whether or not it's going to fall under the USDA or the FDA. Well, and that, and that kind of goes into your the next article and next conversation uh, aligning with this, which is uh, – and all the state departments have their own food safety stuff, co- uh, quality programs. And the USDA and the FDA will contract with the state departments to manage certain aspects of food safety and quality as well. Right. Which means that depending on what state they're operating in, that could potentially be a little bit different. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, and then we talk about, you know, when we start to talk about 
regulatory agencies, and I'm just going to use retail, for example. Now, most states, you would think, would adopt the FDA food code. Everybody assumes that the FDA food code is law. Oh, that is a good point. Yes. and, and It's not. It's really recommendations. Yes. The FDA food code is not law. It, it, depends think, on, it depends on the food code, but yes. Right. Like the FISMA, state, Food Safety Modernization Act, is law, but the different food codes. I'm talking about just the basic just the basic FDA food code itself. Right. Like the CFR. 800 pages of the FDA food code. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Which is great reading, guys. Like if you, if you have a hard time going to sleep at night um, and you're an ambient type of a user, just download this FDA food code and start reading it every single – night before you go to sleep and you'll be out by page <laughs> two. You're welcome. Tip of the day, how to sleep better. <laughs> so each state then decides whether or not they want to adopt the food code. Right. Or which food code to adopt because they could have adopted the previous one right. of like, like 10 years ago and not the newest one. Oh, so wait a minute. Wait a minute. There is one state that's still operating on the 1995 food code. We've got four states that are operating on the 2001 food code. Two states that are operating on the 2005 food code, nine states that are choosing to operate on the 2009 food code, 16 on the 2013, and 18 on the 2017. Wow, that is fascinating. Now, with the new food code just recently being released, those numbers are going to change and we're going to have people that are operating on the new food code. It takes time for those changes to take place right. because things need to be implemented and you know, again, there's a cost factor with making those changes. Do they name the states? They do. Oh my gosh. Okay. So who's, who's, who's operating on, I feel like I'm peeking in somebody's closet. Who's, who's operating still on the 1995? South Dakota. Is that it? Just South Dakota? Um, yeah. Wow. What states are, have updated to the most recent ones? Um, Arizona, Delaware, Florida, Two of three agencies that operate in that state. Georgia, one of two agencies that operate in that state. Illinois, Iowa, Mississippi, one of two agencies. So that means there's two agencies that operate in that state that aren't using the same food code. <laughs> that is, uh, Nebraska, New Hampshire, New Mexico, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Carolina, Texas, Virginia, two agencies. There may be three agencies in that state. And Washington. Yeah. People ask me sometimes why I'm libertarian. I'm like, oh, if you if you spend a year working in the regulations of food, you'll understand. <laughs> it's so crazy. Oh my gosh. Okay, so that is such a huge discrepancy. And then there's not just a discrepancy amongst states, but there's also discrepancies of departments within the states. So there are 12 states that have multiple regulatory agencies. I mean, I don't think people care unless you're, you know, do what we do. Most people don't care about this really. But yeah, 12 states have multiple regulatory agencies. 39 states have a single state regulatory agency that's responsible for regulating restaurants and retail food stores. So it gets so complicated. I mean, and it's so convoluted. So, you know, for example, in Pennsylvania, when we talk about retail and having a person in charge, when you operate a restaurant, for most of the state, you do not have to study to take an exam for the person in charge to satisfy that person in charge criteria if you're going to go the certification route. So that's for the state. However, 
we have several counties that require you to sit for an exam. Right. Some of those counties require eight hours of study. Some require 16. So if you're somebody in my position that needs to know what those are, if you work across the state, it can become complicated in one state. Now, imagine working across the country. Yeah. In Maryland, it's the same situation. You get down around Baltimore, and I believe there's a county in the western side of the state that requires 16 hours of seat time, meaning that you have to have instruction. Some states, Ohio, I believe, they might have just recently changed, doesn't allow online training. You have to have live training. Plus, they require certain state laws be covered in the classroom in addition to the national criteria. Right. So it gets, you know, very complicated as you're, you know, somebody that does any type of education trying to figure this out across the United States. And then suppose you are on a state border and you have people, let's say you're in Northern Virginia and you have people from Northern Virginia, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and two different counties in Maryland in that room. Oh, wow. So you have to satisfy all of that criteria. So you go with whatever the strictest criteria in the room is. What, you don't want to teach all four states? Well, I have. No, no, at the same time. I have. (laughs) Oh my gosh, have you? For more than one corporation, most recently Target, yeah. Oh, right. And we would have to make sure that we met their criteria of everybody that was in that room. Yeah, that's, oh my gosh. Okay, okay, so let's just say, and this this is going to be a very, very scary Now that was- again, years ago, but yeah, I'm sure they're still doing the same, you know, the same thing. Right. 100%. You have to. Oh yes. And, and, and there, uh, well, all the different, the, you're going to constantly have different expectations and regulations based upon different States. That's the way our system's set up, but okay. Let's go back to the federal government and taking the F out of the FDA. I have a really scary thought for you. What if you were the empire of California, you were the emperor and you had the ability to do whatever you wanted to the FDA. What would you do to change it? I'd bring Frank back. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough, sir. And I'd say, Frank, what what can I do to make your life easier? What is it that you need from us? (laughs) Oh, man. He's like, can can it work? Can it work like Walmart? Can I can I make that like changes whenever? <laughs> and that's probably the hardest and most frustrating thing is it's a bureaucracy, right? So making this way, that's why I'm saying, yeah, that's why I'm saying like if you could change it and there was no bureaucracy and whatever you did stuck, what would that look like? What would you do other than bringing friends? Right. Well, the first thing I would do is like we're talking about, I, you know, would separate those entities. Yeah. And then I would you know, there's so much overlap and so many jurisdictional problems is we would have to sit down as a group and figure out these jurisdictional. And and you need to bring in not just people in the room that are making the rules and regulations, but we need to bring in some industry folks and say, look, this is clearly not working. What will work? We need people with industry knowledge in these sessions to figure out what will work, what's going to work best, how can we make it work, and why? Yeah, you know, those are the things we need to know. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say in the, I wouldn't even say in the room. I would say they need to be employed. We need to get like some 
CEOs of different companies in the supply chain, CEOs um, or like VPs of food safety um, from um, major retailers and food service companies like what Frank was as actual bureaucrats in the FDA because because they they not only know I mean they know where all the skeletons are hidden within the industry because they probably hidden some of them but I think I think once they're hired and they become part of the bureaucracy it creates problems oh I get what you're saying if they're like an outside okay but if they could be like an outsider that has some sort of authority or ability to change create change but I get what you mean once you once you put them into the bureaucracy, they become a bureaucrat. They are the bureaucracy. So we need to create separate channels. So we need regulators. We need industry folks and industry folks from each, each genre, you know? Yeah. We need retail in there. We need- Distribution. Um, restaurants. We need distribution. We need all the genres in there to be represented. Processors, farmers, et cetera. Yeah, grocery, you know, <laughs> restaurants, retail- Everybody needs to be in there. Right. Because every every channel's different. They don't all operate the same for a variety of reasons. So attorneys, I think we need that represent. You need the Darren Detweilers. You need the Bill Marlers. I, Bill Marlers, an attorney. Because I think that they could help with, they have a different perspective right. of where the risk, what is the risk, why it is a risk, and- not just him, but the attorneys from the other side yeah. as well, because there's going to be different perspectives there. Just it needs to be a well-rounded representation to try to figure out what's going to work, how will it work. And I think that that, um, I'm going to call it a war room, you know, to talk about these things and try to come up with some different scenarios of what can we do before some bureaucrats that have never worked in food, sit in a room and try to figure out what in the world we're going to do it. How are we going to do it? Or maybe they've only were ever worked in production, or maybe they ever were only ever worked on a farm and don't have the slightest idea of what it's like to work in another part of the industry. Because I'm going to tell you, as somebody that's worked in multiple facets of the industry, they're all different and they all have a different perspective. And for good reason, you know, what works in one part of the industry doesn't work in another for a very valid reason. And you need to be able to understand why it doesn't work and how are we going to work together to meet in the middle. Yeah. So that brings us to the second part of what we want to talk about, which is like cannabis with the FDA and what that looks like for regulation. If we're separating food from or the F from FDA, food out of the you know food and drug, then we should probably separate cannabis as well, at least have its own department because it's its own thing. And the FDA is trying to figure it out. And really, um, regulators are trying to figure it out. Tyler and I are talking, Tyler from um, ASI, one of the companies that I kind of work with through CSQ, Cannabis Safety and Quality. We're talking at New England Cannabis Convention in Boston. And this is going to be one of the things that we talk about is regulations in, in cannabis and what that looks like on a state and federal level. And one of the big things is how how is that going to be managed federally? And if they're already altering and changing the FDA, it'd be kind of cool if they created this sub thing, at least in the beginning as a research 
type of mechanism until it is federally legal. It will be federally legalized, but it will be federally legalized on a very interesting way. Someone asked me, actually, I get asked this quite a bit, like at different conferences, stuff like that. Um, you know, once you know, once Democrats are in the House and the Senate and the president, even then cannabis will be legalized, right? And I and I say no, it's probably not gonna be legalized for a decade, federally, federally legalized for a decade. And the reason why is because the senators from Democratic states are equally scared about federally legalizing cannabis as conservative states are. And the reason why is just the amount of money that is created for that product within those states. It doesn't make sense to continue growing cannabis year long in Illinois, New York, Michigan, et cetera, when you can grow it year round in California, Florida, Arizona, and ship it across all the to all the different states. And they've they've created a ton of money creating licenses to grow, cultivate, um, process, and sell retaily that particular product. And if it's federally legalized and you no longer have the commerce clause separating each individual state, then they can lose a lot of money. And so it's going to be a while. And in, and in that time, it'd be awesome if the, the, the government, the federal government actually utilized this, this period of time as a research tool on how to best regulate it once it does become. Because just like what we were talking about, just like Francine, what you were talking about with all the different state departments and how discombobulated it is, well, that is compounded for cannabis, particularly on the safety side. You know, everybody's worried about traceability, which, you know, it's interesting because now on the food side, traceability has become a huge thing. Um, my business partner and I are doing a lot on that with the new FISMA 204 traceability code. But in cannabis, that's like number one, seed to sale is a huge part of the regulations. But the on the actual consumer safety side of things in terms of you know mycotoxins and yeast and mold and pathogens, that is very low. There's a ton of testing that's done on cannabis, much more than there is on food products. But the testing is more for um, THC, turpentine, CBD, et cetera, et cetera. Not so much uh, yeast and mold, listeria, salmonella, et cetera. So it's or our pesticides because pesticides that are utilized on cannabis that are perfectly fine consumed by human beings orally and through your stomach. If you heat them up at a certain temperature, it can turn into like arsenic or something like that. There was yeah, I got sick. I mean, they're perfectly fine consumed, but when you when you heat them up, that that process changes the chemical compound of some of these pesticides, and and, and it, it changes it, and it's not good. So all that stuff is is being worked out right now at the state level, but there's not a lot of communication that's happening between all the states and on a federal level. So it will be fascinating to see what that looks like as it unfolds over the next decade to two decades. And see, in the meantime, what I find scary is consumers are purchasing a lot of products yes, through e-commerce and whatnot on the shelves of stores in many places now. Yeah. You're talking about like the CBD side of things, like the Delta 8, Delta 9. Yeah. Right. That they assume because they can go out and they can buy it or because they can order it, that it's been approved by the FDA and that it is safe. And that's not the case. No. The FDA has nothing to do with it. No. And and really- Back to the previous, you know, conversation we were having about the FDA. They don't have the budget. They barely have the budget to manage food, which is their priority. 
let alone cannabis. So, you know, they're definitely kicking this can down the road, but it'd be awesome if it was its own department federally, at least for the research side of things, because there's a lot of claims that where the FDA really gets involved in is the claims. It's like this pro no, this product has not been proven to cure cancer. You can't put that on the label, right? Right. And even even like on the sleep side of things, you, you can't even really say that it it will put you to sleep. So what people have been doing is is adding melatonin to their their CBD products because it is proven that like melatonin can put you to sleep. So there's like a lot of this little thing that's happening in the background with uh, with these dietary supplement companies on trying to figure out how to label it even correctly. Right. It's yeah. It convoluted at best. My word of the day, convoluted. Convoluted. <laughs> when there's more than like two syllables, I have a hard time counting them. Convoluted. Yeah, that's a that's like a four syllable word, Francine. <laughs> Might need to back that down a little. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting too because on the cannabis side, right? A lot of the a lot of the states, almost all the states in the union, have cannabis legalized in some way, shape, or form. Whether that be a medical, medical, recreational, um, et, et cetera. So if it's just medical, then you have to assume that a good portion of the people that are utilizing those products are immunocompromised of some way. Like they have cancer or they have AIDS or they have something like that, which only compounds any food safety issues. Like if they're consuming gummies or whatever, they're not going to be able to fight off that outbreak as well as somebody else that's healthy. Good point. Another point to that is a lot of those people, the people that fall into the immunocompromised group, don't understand what it means to be in that group. For example, some people that have cancer know that they shouldn't do certain things, but they don't know, they they don't understand that you shouldn't eat this because your immune system is now weaker. Right. Or they just, their their doctor may say, okay, now you have a weakened immune system. Or, or they don't tell them what that means. I mean, of course they know they have a weakened immune system. Or don't eat at buffets. Or, and that's a whole nother subject we don't have time to talk about today. <laughs> or don't eat sprouts. Or stay away from raw shellfish. But they don't explain to them why. why? I, right. I know somebody that has cancer and her doctor told her, to make sure that she wore her mask in all public places. Now, this isn't food related, but it, it, totally different thing. But he didn't explain to her because now we're not all wearing masks everywhere we go anywhere. At least most of us are. It's not man aren't. It's not mandated, and she wasn't. But after she was diagnosed with cancer, he just said to her, "You need to wear your mask now whenever you go out into public." But he didn't tell her why. Right. And it's because she now has cancer and her immune system is weaker. And, and she said to me, I'm not going to wear this in here. Do you think that that's okay? I just, I don't want to wear it. And so I had to explain to her why it's important that she does wear it when she goes into these places. That's fascinating. Because I mean, you and I do a lot of trainings and the difference between reading somebody a PowerPoint presentation and providing them a test and doing a training, which I think those things, two things are very, very different is a training incorporates the how 
and the why, right? And that's very, very important to change culture, to change a paradigm, to change somebody's mind on a certain world outlook. And so your friend who has cancer is going like, nobody likes, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure there are people who like wearing masks. The majority of people are not those people. And so, but there, there is a purpose. There is a reason to wear a mask for certain people. And if, if they're not predisposed to wearing them without explaining the why, they're not going to do it. I have for years said there's a difference between training and a difference between education. Yes. Training shows you how education explains the whys. And my scenario has always been, would you rather have your child be taught sex education or shown sex education? As a, as a teenage boy. Be taught sex education or have sex training. <laughs> taught sex education or you know, sex training. I mean, what would you prefer? Uh, I think I, well, for my children, I would want the education. Yeah. You know, there's a difference between sex education and sex training. There's wow. a there's a definite difference between sex education and sex training. Yes. Are we going to put a not safe for work <laughs> title on this podcast now, Francine? <laughs> Again, the face. <laughs> I mean, that makes it clear, right? <laughs> yes, it definitely makes it clear. Point well made. <laughs> yeah. Wow, from masks to that. That's fascinating. You know, over the years, there's not a lot I haven't, I've been in a lot of groups. There's not much that embarrasses me or I, <laughs> no, can't, no. You know, I can't talk about. Oh my God. Well, speaking of something that would be very, very embarrassing, what's the myth? Well, it's not really a myth. This is another TikTok claim. Oh, that's right. It's a TikTok thing. People stay, the, the stuff that you hear and see on TikTok. Oh man. This stuff, most of it has not been researched. A lot of it is not true. No, no, no. What do you mean, Francine? Isn't everything on TikTok true? I mean, oh my God. It's like Facebook. Facebook. It is. Yeah. Everything on Facebook is true too, right? Just because you read it does not mean that it's the gospel. It just does not. Someone on TikTok is claiming that you can put a clove of garlic in your nostril and it's going to clear your sinuses. Oh, it might. It might. But I don't think that this is like a medical procedure. You should be sticking nothing in your nose. Nothing in your nose. That's probably good advice, Francine. Let's not stick anything. One of the first things that we're taught is do not stick anything up your nose. Yes. Well, I well I will probably try out the um, myth from la- from last week, the orange in the shower. I don't think I'll be partaking in this parte. I, I, yeah, I'm not going to be sticking any garlic up my nose. That's- and you know what? I'm Italian. I have like garlic on everything. I put garlic on just about everything, but not in my nose. I love the smell of garlic, but I don't need um, – I don't need that tactile experience. <laughs> I mean, I I love garlic, but I'm not going to how many sh- I'm not going to stick any up my nose. How many how many children have had to have things removed from their nose at the ER? Yes. Well, I mean, <laughs> as you as you know, Francine, I have had a lot of experiences with weird children stuff just because of the pure numbers of children in my household. I actually had a daughter stick a marble up her nose. Yeah. So, and I was like, oh my, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And I was freaking out. And, um, our, <laughs> luckily, luckily, uh, the lady who cleans our house was there 
and uh, she was like, "Oh, I I know what to do. I don't no need don't 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 take don't take her to the ER. I I got this. I got this." And I'm like, "Okay, well, what what are you gonna do?" And she's like, "Hold down one nose, blow in her mouth." And I'm like, "No way. Yes, uh, sure, sure, sure enough, Francine. That marble popped out. I, I created some sort of vacuum. I plugged one nostril, blew in her mouth, pop." <laughs> Guys, I get. I wish. I wish we had video. The look on your face. I'm trying to think. I mean, I know that's all connected. <laughs> ear, ear, nose, and throat, doctor. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know what? The the garlic and the nostril thing might be a good way of getting kissed. Like if you're like you're like you're like oh my gosh, I got this stuck in here. Let me hold this nostril down. Blow in my mouth, please. <laughs> There you go. Like, nope. You stuck that clove of garlic <laughs> up your nose. You figure it out. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. How would you get how how would you easily get that out? Like obviously there was a lot of things that was not fully thought through. Like TikTok, these are like videos. Are people showing videos of themselves putting garlic up their nose? I, I'm sure they are. <laughs> okay. Now everybody knows that we haven't fully done our homework on this one. <laughs> yeah, but no, I just I got to go search that out. I mean, besides the marble, what else have children in your family stuck up their nose? Anything? Uh, no, not not that got stuck that I can think of. No, we have a lot of bloody noses in the house, just just like a genetic thing. So, like toilet paper, but. Nothing like that would get stuck. My brother-in-law gave my granddaughter a rubber UPS truck a long, long time ago. <laughs> oh, gosh. I can actually <laughs> see where this is going. And she bit the tire off of it. She was like two, maybe. She bit the tire off of it. And I, I feel certain it was her. She stuck it up her nose. I just sent my daughter a message and asked if she stuck it up her nose or in her ear. <laughs> I think she stuck it up her nose. <laughs> but I can remember my daughter had to take her to have it, I had to take her to have it removed. So I remember there was a whole house series on this. Whole house episode with this kid that kept coming back in and sticking stuff up his nose. <laughs> Are you? Oh my gosh! There really is videos of people sticking TikTok. Like, oh my gosh! On TikTok, sticking uh, garlic up their nose. Okay. Well. <laughs> look at the look on this doctor's face. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about like my wife and uh, on 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 people on Francine's side are telling people to put t- do TikToks to promote our uh, podcast, and it's a great idea. Except we know nothing about TikTok. At least I don't. <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess, uh, man. Okay. I just, we need to figure out how to link it to TikTok. We don't know how yeah. to link the podcast to TikTok. I don't think there's, we just, you know. I'm, what I'm worried about is if we start you, if we start going on to TikTok, will our IQ automatically decrease? Oh, now see, that's... <laughs> I don't think so. There no, are okay. some very okay. TikTok has become now at one time TikTok was um a little different. I think there are some very successful businesses that are now using both TikTok and Instagram to market. Yeah. Um, I do understand Google, like, what you're saying, 
However, (laughs) at one time, at one time, um, but some very successful businesses are now marketing on TikTok. And you know what? I guess it's it's a lot of good. um, uh, It's a great resource to find stupid things that people do for us. Well, that it is. But it's also (laughs) it's also very visual. So for people that are visual, yes, yes, that is a good point and quick. So people who have ADHD like you and I, <laughs> it's like only what are these videos like thirty seconds? They're very short clips. But like my wife and my kids are on that for hours because it's like well you get sucked in. It's like you watch one, then it scrolls to another one that is like in the same. You know, if you, for example, you know that I have a Newfoundland dog. So you start to look at these crazy Newfoundland puppy clips or this silly stuff that these dogs are doing. Next thing you know, you're in this this feed that is nothing but that. And before you know it, it's like, oh, my God, how did I get sucked into this? (laughs) So you have to just like stay out of it. By the way, Francine, I actually saw your Newfoundland walk past you at your desk just recently. And I thought there was a bear in your office. (laughs) She's big. (laughs) It's huge. It's huge. She has to be taller and way more than you. Oh, she is. Yes. My husband's six foot, six one. She's on her back legs as big as he is. That is just amazing. And she's, she weighs probably, uh, I'm going to guess at this point, probably 110 pounds, maybe a little bit more. Oh my gosh. That's a beast. <laughs> she's a good dog. Thank God. But I mean, there's no question if she wanted to walk me. <laughs> She could walk me. <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm curious as we as we s- sign off. I would love for people to let us know if um, one of two things. If you over the last week have taken an orange into the shower and consumed it, I, that will be one of my tasks this week. I'm I, I'm curious about that. I mean, if it's life changing, Francine, it's life changing, right? Uh, and then number two is, um, I know we were bagging on it, but um, have you ever put garlic in your nose? <laughs> God. To get rid of a sinus for sinuses. And we promise we won't make fun of, we can't promise that. Wait a minute. Our disclaimer is we are not telling anybody to do either any of these things. We are not telling anybody to do either of these things. Matt is simply asking, have you ever? Okay, okay. Maybe we should get a disclaimer with the sarcasm that you and I have. <laughs> not everything said is truthful. <laughs> I guess everything is that we say is truthful. Uh, we just say it sometimes in the negative form in a positive way. <laughs> <don't know. laughs> that wasn't triple negative. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, on that note, we should probably sign off. It's been like almost 50 minutes, huh? 40 minutes. I, oh my. Yeah. We're probably 50 minutes in. Yeah. <laughs> Too much fun. Okay. Well, on that note... Don't eat poop. There you go. Have a great week. <laughs>